Welcome back to the Core EM Podcast, the core content for anyone, anywhere, and just in time. This is the official podcast of the NYU Bellevue EM Residency Program. I'm Anand Swaminathan. And I'm Jenny Beckesme. Jenny, what are we going to talk about today? Well, I thought we could touch on some really bread and butter emergency medicine, like maybe as bread and butter as it gets, and that is caring for the intoxicated patient, what we often like to call the Bellevue Special. Yeah, we are a real center of excellence when it comes to alcohol-related emergencies, but my guess is that there are probably plenty of places across the country who are also experts at this particular bit of management. It's a really important topic. These patients present often to the emergency department, and it's easy to overlook them or under-evaluate them. We need to remember that there are many pathologies that may be present as mimics of alcohol intoxication. The patient that you think may be just drunk, and I put just drunk in quotation marks, Jenny, may actually be harboring some real badness. Among the things that could possibly be causing a similar presentation include intracranial injury like hemorrhage or ischemia, infections, specifically the intracranial variety, but also systemic infections, metabolic abnormalities like hypoglycemia, hyponatremia, hypoxemia, hypo or hyperthermia, hepatic encephalopathy, toxic exposures, seizure disorders, especially if the patient is still in a postictal state or has a non-convulsive status, and then withdrawal syndromes as well. Yeah, we also can't let ourselves get fooled by our frequent flyer drunks. These are the patients we all know well because they turn up intoxicated in the ED pretty frequently. It's important to remember that chronic alcoholics are at greater risk for pneumonia, lung abscesses, meningitis, cardiomyopathies, and coagulopathies. They, of course, have a high incidence of trauma, and they may even have a higher risk of mental health disorders that place them at high risk for dangers of self-harm and suicide. There's not an emergency physician out there who's been working for more than a year or so who doesn't have a story about a patient who they thought was just drunk, who later turned out to have an intracranial hemorrhage, an ischemic stroke, sepsis, pneumonia, a femur fracture, intra-abdominal bleeding. I mean, the list goes on and on. I've been part of a couple of these cases myself, and they really make you think hard about saying, oh, he's just drunk. The way I look at it is that chronic alcoholics were created to humble emergency physicians. If you want to make sure you don't miss anything serious, then take them all seriously. Okay, so you go to see a new patient. He's a middle-aged man who's been found down in the alley with a couple of empty bottles around him. He can't give you much of a history. He doesn't respond to you at all when you talk to him, but you can get him to moan, curse, swear, and swat at you when you try your tactile stimulus techniques. You think, great, it's just another drunk guy pretty harmless right now. I'm going to let him sleep and eventually he'll wake up on his own, ask me for a turkey sandwich and we'll send him on his way. Now that may be all that needs doing, but you need to give them a proper assessment before you determine that that's all you need to do. So as always, you're going to start with the vital signs. It probably goes without saying that if they have vital sign abnormalities, then they deserve a very thorough evaluation to explain those findings. Importantly, for these patients, the vital signs must include a finger stick glucose. Hypoglycemia is a common mimic of alcohol intoxication and it's life-threatening if not treated right away. If they are hypoglycemic and unable to take PO, you'll want to give 0.5 to 1 gram per keg of dextrose, which typically ends up being 1 to 2 amps of D50 right away to correct that. Once the patient is awake enough, make sure to give them some food and keep that blood sugar up. Theoretically, you need to give thiamine prior to the dextrose to prevent Wernicke's encephalopathy, and we'll get to this in a bit, but if the patient is significantly hypoglycemic, you don't want to delay the dextrose while you're waiting for the nurse to get the thiamine. Just give the dextrose. 
Remember that glucagon is unlikely to be helpful in these patients with chronic alcohol abuse because their hypoglycemia isn't going to respond to glucagon. They don't have much in the way of liver glycogen stores. So don't bother with giving the glucagon. Get IV access and give the dextrose. Next, the patient needs a thorough physical exam, and that means undressed and in a gown. Check their head for evidence of trauma. Check the pupils to make sure they're equal and reactive, as well as that the patient can move them in all directions. You want to make sure they don't have a fixed gaze deviation. Check the neck to make sure it's non-tender. Look at their mental status. Now, this can be difficult early on, but you want to see what it is at baseline, and you want to watch it improve with time. Remember, unless they're actively drinking in the emergency department, they should get better as time passes if it's just alcohol on board. Check their heart and lungs, looking for either dysrhythmias, uh, signs of a murmur that could indicate that they've got endocarditis, and also looking for pneumonia, which is very common in these patients. Check their extremities and make sure they can move all their extremities, but if they're too sleepy, you're going to have to passively range these to see if there's any obvious trauma or if you elicit pain, which indicates that there's trauma. Additionally, look at their skin for any signs of infection or cellulitis. If the patient is able to cooperate with the history, there are some specific questions I like to ask. Now, these are designed to give me a sense of the patient's drinking habits, their risk of withdrawal, and the concerns I should have for any coexisting medical problems. So first I ask, how much do you drink every day? I want to know if they're a daily drinker or if this is just somebody who had a binge. I like to ask what you actually drank today, and I like to get specific with this if I can. I want to make sure that what they're drinking is actually ethanol and they didn't actually consume some kind of toxic alcohol instead. I want to know what time they had their last drink. I want to know if they used any other drugs or substances along with their alcohol. I really want to know if they've ever had any issues with alcohol withdrawal. If they did, what happened? What happens to them when they stop drinking? Have you had the shakes? Have you had seizures? Did you ever have to stay in the ICU or get intubated? Because the patient might not necessarily know what the DTs are, but they might be able to tell you that, oh yeah, I was in the ICU or, oh yeah, I had a tube down my throat. I want to know if they remember any falls or trauma to the body because that might help me focus my exam a bit. And I also want to know what other medical problems they have. I want to know if they have chronic pancreatitis. I want to know if they have diabetes, other things I should be concerned about. That's a nice list to get if the patient's not that drunk, especially because a lot of these patients do have other medical problems. They haven't been taking their medications, and this might be somewhere where you can help to intervene. I know a lot of times we see these patients, they're not taking their meds, you give them meds, they don't ever take them again, but we should still be trying to find that information, plug them in for follow-up, and do our best to get them the medications they need to be on. So now that you've screened the patients, you've checked their vitals, you've done a good physical examination and the best history you can get, you have to decide where you're going to go from here. Now, you may decide at this point that the patient is just intoxicated and that there's nothing else to worry about. If that's so, you're going to need to place the patient in a safe place where they can easily be observed and allow them to metabolize their alcohol. I often get asked in these situations if we should be getting a blood alcohol level. So, Jenny, I know what your answer is, but are you doing this routinely? Yeah, I get asked this a lot as well, and no, I'm not. So it turns out that a blood alcohol level doesn't really correlate well to a patient's degree of clinical intoxication. And this makes intuitive sense, right? Since a chronic drinker will require much higher blood alcohol levels to be intoxicated than a novice drinker will. Generally, we're only going to get blood alcohol levels when the diagnosis of alcohol intoxication is in question, such as a patient who's failing to sober up as we'd expect them to in the ER. The danger with getting an alcohol level is that people will occasionally wait until the patient reaches a predetermined level before discharge. The issue is that many chronic alcoholics will start withdrawing at levels that would cause many of us to pass out. 
I've had patients walking, talking, and doing higher math at concentrations over 400 milligrams per deciliter. Okay, but let's say that the patient isn't cooperative in sleeping quietly. We see this a lot. They may be angry to be there and they may be disruptive. A patient who is not clinically sober, meaning that they have some alterations in their mental status, their speech, or their coordination, can't safely be discharged from the emergency department. It may require chemical or physical restraints to keep the patient and the staff safe while they're metabolizing their alcohol. So, Swami, do you have a favorite cocktail for this? That's a pretty complicated question, and Ruben Strayer's got some great posts on the topic on his site, EM Updates. If the patient's violent and extremely dangerous, which these patients rarely are, I'll go with five mg per kg of ketamine IM. I want to get them down fast. I want to get them fully assessed and make sure there isn't something else going on. The more common scenario is that they're disruptive, but not really that dangerous. And I'll either use something like five milligrams of halopyridol with two to five milligrams of midazolam, or sometimes just halopyridol alone, and it's going to depend on how disruptive and dangerous that patient is. Now let's briefly just touch on a few of the major medical problems intoxicated patients might face. First and foremost, it's going to be trauma. Now we are pretty liberal with CT scans in these patients, as they are altered and unable to provide a reliable history or good physical exam. For any patients with signs of head trauma, we usually will just get a CT of the head and C-spine to evaluate for traumatic injuries. The same goes for any bony tenderness or injuries. It's hard to examine, so be liberal with extremity imaging as well, and don't forget about abdominal trauma. I've had a couple of patients who deny trauma up and down no matter how many times you ask them, but they have a little bit of a soft BP, and we whip the fast out, we find that they have splenic laceration. So they probably had some kind of minor fall, they're coagulopathic, and this is what happens. Now, Jenny, you mentioned earlier a little bit about this thiamine issue before glucose to prevent Wernicke's encephalopathy. I think we've all been taught about this. We're going to get Megan Spires back on the podcast to do a deep dive into Wernicke's in a couple of weeks, but let's touch on it a bit here. Wernicke's encephalopathy is a set of acute neurologic and cardiovascular findings, and it's the result of thiamine deficiency. It's a true emergency because the mortality rate here once they develop Wernicke's can be as high as 20%. The classic Wernicke's triad includes oculomotor disturbances, so classically we're looking for ocular palsies and nystagmus, altered mental status, and ataxia. But for a patient to have all three of those findings of Wernicke's triad is actually pretty uncommon. So back in the 90s, these criteria were developed to that were designed to increase our sensitivity in making this diagnosis. So these criteria were for a clinical diagnosis based on the patient having any two of the following four things, ocular motor disturbances, altered mental status or ataxia, and then evidence of a nutritional deficiency. So if they have two of those four things, they might qualify as Wernicke's encephalopathy. I like adding that nutritional deficiency in there because it does remind us that it's not just chronic alcoholics that get this. We also have to worry about patients who are anorexic, patients who have chronic cancer and just don't take good PO intake, and of course our elderly patients who just don't eat well to begin with. The treatment for Wernicke's encephalopathy is going to be thiamine repletion along with supportive care. We start with 500 milligrams of IV thiamine in the emergency department. Additionally, you're going to want to provide them with IV hydration, replete potassium and magnesium, and make sure to give them some sugar. So you want an adequate glucose level. These patients are going to require admission and daily IV thiamine and nutritional support. The ocular findings may actually improve within minutes to hours, but full recovery may take much longer, and many of these patients are never going to fully recover even if you do proper treatment. 
At Bellevue, we like to give our chronic intoxicated patients rather regular IM injections of thiamine doses during their ED visits to help prevent Wernicke's. Regarding this giving thiamine before dextrose, it's thought that dextrose before thiamine could precipitate or worsen Wernicke's, but this idea seems to be based on actually a single article about a handful of cases where the administration of thiamine was delayed by days. If a patient is dangerously hypoglycemic or hypoglycemic and altered, it's important to give the dextrose regardless of the thiamine as hypoglycemia is the far more emergent emergency in that case. I think all of that's absolutely true. What we want to do, though, in our mind is pair these two. So you don't have to give the thiamine before the dextrose, but just make sure to give the thiamine at some point in the next couple of hours, and that's going to be fine. The pairing of these two together, dextrose and thiamine, ensures that we don't give that patient the days to develop Wernicke's encephalopathy after giving them the sugar. Now, how about some take-home points for this particular podcast, Jenny? Absolutely. First, Chronic drinkers and even just acutely intoxicated patients are at risk of many medical emergencies, including life-threatening trauma, infections, metabolic derangements, and tox exposures. Don't dismiss them as just drunk. Second, undress these patients and perform a thorough head-to-toe examination, focusing on looking for evidence of trauma and infection. Get as much history as you can and be sure to ask about their drinking habits and alcohol withdrawal history to risk stratify them in your brain. Third, always check a finger stick glucose and replete glucose as needed. And last, consider giving your chronic intoxicated patients thymine injections semi-regularly to prevent Wernicke's encephalopathy and look for evidence of the triad in your patients as it can be easily overlooked and deadly if missed. Well, that's all for the Core EM podcast this week. Come on over and check out the site at coreem.net. We've got a ton of great core content emergency medicine. We'll have a core post up on Wednesday and a journal update up on Thursday. Don't forget to check out our Facebook page, follow us on Google Plus, and on Twitter where our handle is at core underscore EM. Thanks, and see you all next week.